This is Tony Held uh, here with you for the fourth episode of Cardiac Arrest Management from the Medical Directors Always Right. We are back with Dr. Josh Stilley, and uh, in today's episode, we are covering traumatic arrest, diabetic arrest, opiate-induced arrest, and probably my favorite part of this entire series, uh, we talk about terminating resuscitation and also how we talk to families. So let's get right into it. Okay, so let's switch gears into a traumatic arrest. Uh, you have a 60-year-old male ejected from a motorcycle. You arrive on scene and find first responders performing chest compressions. Lots of scrapes and superficial lacerations. No obvious non-survivable injuries. A uh, friend on scene states that they were doing about 50 miles an hour when he swerved away from a car and wiped into a ditch. So this is definitely traumatic and not medical. What is your priority list? Same. So we want to make sure that we have good compressions. We apply the defibrillator early, uh, and then we have good oxygenation and ventilation in some method. I think in this, it's okay to use the non-rebreather and nasal cannula if that's doing it. If you have enough personnel, bagging is good. One of the things that bagging can get you is some feel for lung resistance because we're going to need to jump a little bit faster into some procedures. Pneumothorax can cause arrest. Um, pericardial effusion can cause arrest. Um, other issues like that. So trying to identify what else is going on. There is a fairly low survival rate for traumatic arrest. It's probably actually higher than what we originally thought. Um, we're going to try a little bit of volume with fluid, but we know in these patients they need blood. So in these patients, I would probably have a, a faster movement to the ambulance to actually transport them if I think we still have a viable patient. What are your thoughts on chest compressions in traumatic arrest? Uh, still beneficial. So still necessary, still needed at the same rate, same depth but uh, need to make sure that you're not pushing against the pneumothorax because that would be problematic or uh, pericardial effusion. So it's okay to go ahead and needle. Um, even if you don't know, go ahead and needle uh, early on. Are you using epinephrine for these patients? Yes. Um, they still are epinephrinopenic uh, uh, in all cardiac arrest according to our current algorithm. So probably still somewhat beneficial just to get a little bit more vasoconstriction, a little bit better cardiac output. Now, we know fairly well across the board, uh, pre-hospital services are using angiocaths to decompress the chest. What are you using in the ER to decompress the chest? First step off the bat, still the angiocath, a good wide gauge. Um, and then the uh, ATLS guidelines have actually moved from the second to third intercostal space at the midclavicular line to more of a lateral position, fourth or fifth intercostal space at the anterior axillary line. The reason they did that is they found uh, providers were often going too lateral from the midclavicular line. They weren't going medial enough or uh, patients uh, had enough what I call fluff uh, at that location that the needle wasn't actually penetrating the lung. So you need to make sure you have a good length and gauge of needle to get that done. Um, so if you uh, pop it in and you don't hear anything, you need to go to a different site to, to be sure. Uh, to make sure you're in the right space. Skinny people, you're probably hitting it, but anybody else, uh, you can you should probably go be, uh, be going lateral fairly early, uh, if not your primary site to just go lateral. Same spot that physicians put in chest tubes is the new site for needle decompression. Leading to my next question, what do you think about performing finger thoracostomies in the field? I think those are probably beneficial in the field too. The, the problem with the needle decompression is the needle, uh, the cannula kinks off pretty quick. So a finger thoracostomy, just using a scalpel to make an uh, incision and then a finger to tunnel down into the pleural space to get that hole opened up is probably beneficial. Uh, at that point, air can get out and then a, uh, just a quick seal can seal that up enough uh, to, so that air can't get back in. 
but especially in a cardiac arrest, I can give you some pretty good information. Uh, it can tell you how much air is in there. Uh, can uh, tell you if there's a lot of blood in the chest space too. If blood is just coming out of the chest space, then there's probably a pretty significant injury of a vascular structure at that point too. What kind of pointers can you give us on transport of traumatic arrest patients? Should we transport traumatic arrest patients? I, th I think there's still a role. Like I was saying before, we have a little bit higher survival rate than some of us think in traumatic arrest. So allowing these patients to still get interventions is beneficial. Some of this depends on how far you are away from a facility that can do those interventions. Uh, some of it is how long they have been down. You know, with a, with a traumatic arrest, they are probably further away uh, than some of our patients uh, in their houses. Um, so, uh, some of it depends, but, uh, you know, it's also not the wrong thing to work it on scene until you get to a point where you, you need to stop too. Um, do you see a point in working it on scene for any amount of time? So it, if it's already been on scene for a while, they've been down for a while and you think your likelihood for survival is low, I would work it on scene and see if I'm getting anywhere. And if I'm not, I would leave, I would call it on scene. Uh, that's not a patient that's going to benefit from transport and utilization of those resources versus happen quick. We think we have something that can be fixed. We think we still have a viable patient. Uh, maybe you're still getting a little bit of movement with, uh, with good chest compressions or, you know, twitching a finger, or wiggling a little bit. That's a patient that probably I would move sooner rather than later. Uh, do you think we would transport, do you think our transport decision would be changed at all if we had pre-hospital ultrasound? Potentially. Um, so that would allow you to see that pneumothorax, yes or no, for sure. See if you have any cardiac function at all uh, with your defibrillation. Uh, look at other stuff as well. Um, uh, see how much blood you have in the abdomen uh, or in the pelvis. Um, but uh, I think it's not going to change it terribly much, but it may help guide your therapies. All right, let's flip gears and move over to the medical side away from trauma. Talk about some diabetic cardiac arrests. Is there such a thing as a hypoglycemia-induced cardiac arrest? Probably. One of the problems with getting a blood sugar on our cardiac arrest patients, they probably have pretty low blood flow to the extremities uh, anyway, just from the cardiac arrest state, uh, even with compressions. The, those peripheral tissues are probably still utilizing glucose at a pretty good rate. So we probably have pretty low glucose level readings peripherally. It's never known whether that is a true glucose reading or if that's just a false one. Um, so if you get a peripheral glucose, it's low, go ahead and push your uh, dextrose-containing uh, solution. That's okay. That's not a problem. It might help. It's probably not going to hurt if it's low. Um, can glucose get low enough to cause cardiac arrest? Yeah, probably. You get altered. You get hypoventilatory. Um, you're going to go into cardiac arrest. Um, so that's probably a cause in a fair amount of patients, um, but it's hard to know chicken or the egg, whether that was really the cause in our patients or not. But if it's low, go ahead and treat it, but know that that may or may not have actually been the cause in that case. Okay. So we know brain needs sugar because obviously hypoglycemia gives us lots of wonky brains. Does the heart need glucose to achieve ROSC? So the heart can use more sources of energy than the brain can. Um, it's not quite as demanding as the brain, but because the heart is working so hard, it probably would benefit from glucose being there, especially in VTAC, VFib, when it's working really, really hard. It would probably need glucose uh, to be able to um, get back into normal rhythm and start clearing out some of the acidosis that's occurred. Um, so if it's low, giving glucose to try to see if you can get cardiac function improved is probably beneficial. 
Um, but the heart as a muscle can use other sources of energy just like our other muscles can, but definitely glucose is the preferred for best function. Do you think we risk reperfusion injury to the brain at all if we create a hyperglycemic uh, state? Giving some peripheral dextrose uh, at our doses is not going to create a high enough hyperglycemic state to cause injury to the brain. Think about your uh, DKA patients uh, that are in the 6-700 range. We're certainly not giving glucose above that range once it's diluted out in the blood flow because it goes in the veins, goes to the heart, uh, goes through the lungs and back to the heart, and then gets distributed. So the average glucose that the periphery is seeing uh, in the arterial circulation is probably not in that 6, 7, 8, 900 range. The, the body can uh, accommodate that okay. You know, you might get a little bit of benefit from that osmotic load in the blood vessels, pulling a little bit of fluid in, so it might give you a little bit more uh, um, blood circulating volume anyway. So, yeah, go for it. So should we use D50 instead of D10? Yeah, absolutely. I just changed my whole (laughs) argument. No, no, no. Uh, Okay, how about an opiate-induced arrest? Uh, What is your priority priority list for an opiate-induced arrest? Priority for the opiate-induced arrest is the same priority as everybody else, making sure you have good compressions, early defibrillation, Oxygenation ventilation moves up a little bit because that's usually the reason why the opiate-induced arrest occurred in the first place. So in these patients, if I'm expecting drugs or alcohol were the cause, I'm probably not doing um, um, the compression-only CPR. I'm probably using bag vast ventilation to try to uh, resolve that. That's the first step. If you can get oxygenation a little bit better, sometimes you'll get them back just with that. Um, the interesting thing that came out in some of the Narcan guidelines recently was Narcan was not recommended in nar- uh, opioid-induced overdose. And a couple of the guidelines I saw, yeah, I thought that was really silly. So I'm, I'm going to give Narcan probably in a pretty decent load in these patients. I am not really overall a great fan of Narcan. I'd rather intubate people than give them Narcan and make them angry. Uh, but in our cardiac arrest patients, certainly uh, giving some Narcan to see if you can uh, get a better outcome is a reasonable thing. Narcan will help with ROSC, in my opinion, in these patients. Well, it takes us to our next question. How much Narcan is enough Narcan? That is a wonderful question that I also can't answer. So enough is however much it takes. So when we think about our uh, traditional uh, opioid abusers of heroin and morphine, a couple milligrams of Narcan are probably going to do the trick. If a couple milligrams don't work or certainly two doses of two milligrams, it's not uh, an opioid-induced problem. However, some of our newer agents like carfentanil and some of those other agents are taking upwards of 10 milligrams to get any effect. Um, So if you know what the uh, person took and uh, it's something of the new synthetic, they're probably going to need a pretty high load, um, 5, 10 milligrams of Narcan before you're going to get any effect from it. If it's more of the traditional stuff, 2 milligrams, you're probably going to get some benefit. Most of the time, you don't know. A lot of times a patient doesn't know uh, what they took because um, you know they're told it's heroin, no idea what was laced in. Uh, uh, incidentally, street drugs are not FDA approved, so you don't ever really know what's uh, what's in them. So enough is the amount that you get the benefit from. So I usually start with two and give it a you know a couple of times. But if I'm out of Narcan, I'm probably not going to be like fighting for more Narcan at that point. So my my go-to number, which I've pulled out of thin air and has no data to support it whatsoever, is, is six. So if I think that it's probably heroin, I, I throw six at them. Um, I, I don't really know if that's kind of the right way to go, but I've wondered, you know, you guys have kind of unlimited Narcan in the hospital. Well, not unlimited now. It's going on shortage. But in theory, you would have unlimited Narcan. So I was kind of curious, at what point do you just give in and, and say that, that that's all your... 
Yeah, so six isn't a bad number. That would be as well supported by the literature as any other number you can uh, uh, pull out of the hat. Um, so the other thing to think about is the mechanism of why they went into cardiac arrest in the first place from an opioid uh, uh, cause. One is hypoventilation. We're fixing that with bag mass ventilation. The other big thing is vasodilation. We're fixing that with epinephrine. So we're, um, and then there's some decreased cardiac output as well. That's a little bit dependent on what opioid it is, but we're also helping that with epinephrine. So we're fixing three of the big problems with opioids uh, from just our normal care. That's why our normal care has to happen first, because uh, if those problems aren't corrected, uh, then we're not going to do any benefit with Narcan anyway. But at the same time, maybe some Narcan will help those. But if it's not helping with a good dose, whatever that's determined to be, you're probably not going to get much further. So give a dose, call it a day, keep going with the normal. So that's my last question on this. If they're dead from opiates, uh, do you think that they have a chance of neurologic recovery? Yeah, I've seen a couple of patients who have a good, uh, do a good job of almost putting themselves into a stasis uh, with opiates. I don't know if it just slows down brain function and keeps them from using too much oxygen or what. Same thing with some of our chronic alcoholics that go into cardiac arrest. They just, they stick around and they do a good job. So uh, I never count anybody out for neurologic recovery. Uh, anyway, and it's that's something to, to prognosticate is really, really tough to do on any of our patients. Um, I think uh, the best data I have is that we all actually do a pretty poor job of knowing who's going to do well, who's not. So uh, my job is not to prognosticate when I start the, the code. It's only after that we're done to know, yep, that was successful or not. So I think every patient deserves uh, good fundamental uh, cardiac arrest care from the get-go and then um, filling in uh, the information later on as we go. Um, but again, if you know that was a cardiac arrest and they were last seen last night and they're cold and livid, that's a deceased patient. That's not one that's survivable from uh, um, any mechanism. So you are not a nihilist. No, I'm sorry. Well, that takes us to our very next topic, which is termination of resuscitation. So how do we determine uh, what's enough? Do you have a rubric or can it really be outlined? That's, a, that's one that I don't think we even have a good standard across the country yet. There's a lot of feel to when you should terminate resuscitation. There's a couple guidelines that help us. Uh, one thing is entitled CO2 less than 10. We know has lower chance of survival. Uh, working a code uh, for more than 20, 30 minutes. Uh, PEA or asystolic arrest definitely have lower survival than VFib, VTAC arrests. Um, things like that. Um, however, uh, what is the exact uh, thing you can apply to all patients? I don't think there really is a great standard. But as long as you do uh, good fundamental care, ALS application of care, uh, medications, um, defibrillate appropriately, uh, know that you're doing good chest compressions all the time. Once, once I hit about that 20, 30 minute mark, that's the point where I'm like, yeah, we're probably not getting anywhere with this. Um, and um, the ones that are the interesting ones that still scare me are the ones that um, there are cases of people working cardiac arrest for two hours and then finally getting the patient back. And like a couple of them have had good neurologic uh, recovery from that. So you never really know for sure. But I think once we hit about that 20, 30 minute mark with good care, doing all of our interventions, making sure we're uh, hitting our H's and T's, uh, you know, that, that's the point we're kind of hitting futility and uh, need to make a decision to stop. Well, and this is kind of what scares me about ECMO coming around is that, you know, if you listen to Joe Belezzo, uh, I think he's thrown nine patients on ECMO and five have had good neurologic recoveries. And so those are patients, as he would tell you directly, we're going to call dead. So ACLS hasn't worked. Let's try something different. And these are patients that are walking out of the hospital. So that's what scares me about 
kind of withdrawing resuscitation because there could be a therapy out there that is going to get them back. Um, it just may not be in our hands. Yeah. And unless you have that therapy in your hands, you're not going to get that benefit. But same thing goes, if you're walking in a forest, somebody with you drops, you don't have a monitor, you don't have drugs, you don't have anything. Yeah. You're, you're probably not getting that person back because you don't have the resources uh, to be able to do that. And that's kind of where we are with ECMO for some of those places. We just, we don't know who yet should go on ECMO. We don't know how best to apply it. Um, and it's not universally available and it probably will never be universally available or at least for a long, long time. All right, so now the, the sadness ensues. Uh, how do you talk to families? Uh, what does it sound like when you're discussing uh, withdrawing resuscitation? So one of the things that I think is beneficial is bringing the family in before you stop resuscitation. Uh, a lot of times in our uh, scene responses, the family's going to be there. They're, they're, they know there's a problem. They either were doing compressions or have been watching people do compressions. Um, so talking with them as you're going through it, I think is helpful. And this is something that uh, the paramedic uh, can step away, or if you have a good EMT that knows what's going on, can step away and talk with the family as others are continuing to care for the patient. Usually this is also a time I start to get a little bit more information. And part of that is to empower the, the family member bystander, you know, for them to tell me what happened and what they did and stuff. So you start getting some of that information. And I start that with, okay, can you tell me what happened? Or can you can you tell me what you know so far about what's going on? Something to that effect. So they can tell you everything that they know. Then I do a summary of what we've done so far. Okay, well, when we got here, we started compressions. We've been bagging. Uh, we've defibrillated. We've given medications. We've done all of the things we usually do for the patient. And then set the stage of this is where we are right now. And usually I let the patient know, or the not the patient, the family member know. At this point, we're to the point where we don't think that this is going to work. Um, at, I, what I'm going to need to do is call my medical control and talk to them. But at this point, we're probably going to need to terminate resuscitation um, and letting the family know that um, and then allowing the family to process that a little bit. If it takes a couple of minutes for them to, to calm down with that, that's OK. I am perfectly fine with continuing compressions for a couple more minutes while the family kind of deals with that a little bit. I think it's perfectly acceptable for the family member to hold the patient's hand, kiss them before you declare death. Um, that can be really helpful before you say that they've died to, you know, give them one last goodbye where, while they think the family member is still, you know, there with them. I think that can be really helpful for a patient's family. And that can be, honestly, after you call medical control, after they decide that, um, you know, you've all decided that it's futile, continue compressions, but kind of stop everything else and then let the family have a minute or two and then stop compressions at that point. Um, and I think it's very important to use very specific language as well. Um, language such as they're gone or we lost them is not beneficial for the family. They need to hear very clear things of they've died um, or time of death, uh, something like that, um, uh, in order for them to, to actually hit uh, because it's a traumatic time for family uh, when this happens. So something that popped out of that to me that was very profound when you were talking about it was actually um, waiting until the family has had a chance to say one last goodbye to their loved one before you actually tell them that they are dead. Um, that's not something I've ever heard before, and I think it's brilliant. Yeah, and that's something I've incorporated that seems to have worked very well. Bring the family in when we're, when we're kind of tailing down on the resuscitation if they haven't been in before. After I've already told them where we're going, they know what's happening. But to a family member, while you're still doing compressions, that person is still there. So letting them say goodbye while they're still alive helps helps them under uh, you know say goodbye a little bit well i gotta say goodbye one last time if you declare death and then they say goodbye they didn't have that same opportunity 
Now to us, we know that that's no different. Like they're dead. We're just finally catching up to it. Um, but to the family member, it's a completely uh, it's a complete change from when you declare death um, before and after. So they they feel like they still got to say goodbye at that point. So I don't think that's harmful for the uh, patient. I don't think it's a um, abuse of the dead body at all at that point because you haven't declared death. Um, so doing some compressions for a minute or two for them to make that last goodbye, you, you don't extend it indefinitely. I don't give patients at that point when I determine that it's time to end the resuscitation. I don't give them a chance to um, ask, well, he's not a DNR. That that discussion's already done. We've already declared or decided that the resuscitation is futile and it's time to terminate. That's a medical decision that's been made. But allowing the family member to participate in that process is really, really helpful for their grieving. What do you do with uh, the really inconsolable family that's demanding that this patient be transported to the ER uh, to have a physician work on them? So that is the time to help lean on in medical control and also on what you've done. If you've done high quality compressions, you've good, had good oxygenation, ventilation, um, all of those things, those are good things to remind the patient, reminding them that um, there's not going to do anything different in the emergency department than we've already done here uh, the same standard of care is held in the pre-hospital as it in the emergency department for this patient. We've talked to the physician that would be managing the patient in the ER, and they agree there's nothing else that they would be doing. I'm very, very sorry. There's nothing else I can do. So being still running them through the process of what happened, um, making them feel like there's uh, it's futile no matter what happens, transport or the ER not going to fix it, making sure that they know you, that you have uh, um, discussed with the physician on that, I think that helps people as well. But also being firm of there's nothing more we can do. We need to stop or we've stopped resuscitation. Uh, do you ever see a scenario in which you would um, kind of reverse course and and give in and do it anyway? I won't, I won't say never, uh, but I think it'd be a very slim thing um, if they got pulses back um, at that point or... The hard ones are the ones where you get it and then you lose it, then you get it, then you lose it. Um, those ones I tend to work a little bit longer too, um, um, but not really, not, not in that scenario. If you've gotten to the futile point and and, and uh, you've hit all your markers, uh, there's not much more you can do. That's It's not going to be beneficial for anybody to extend that time period out. Well, that was something that was very... Uh profound to me that uh, I just heard in a, a podcast was uh, that families don't benefit. They're actually harmed by the more time that that goes on, the more uh, places that that patient has gone and the more providers that touch that patient. It actually uh, prolongs their grieving process and kind of shotguns the, the effect out to all the people that uh, they blame for their loss. Yeah, it extends the time that that family is under stress and extends out that, that stressful situation. That closes out episode four of cardiac arrest management for the medical directors always right. We only have one more episode left in this series, and it's all about scene logistics and what the pre-hospital physician's role is on our scenes. Catch all the show notes for this episode at cbcemp.proboards.com. Uh, shoot some feedback out there and we will Get all that information out to Dr. Stilly so he can answer all your questions. You can subscribe to The Medical Director is Always Right by searching for CBC EMP on any podcast player, including iTunes and SoundCloud. 
This is Tony Held and Dr. Josh Stilley with the Medical Directors Always Right. For Columbia and Boone County Emergency Medical Professionals, we will catch you again soon.